seated. Uh, we're doing things a little bit different this morning. Um, as you can tell, I'm up here really quickly. Uh, we're going to spend some time in the Word uh, early off this, this morning, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with some worship, and I'll explain that here in a moment. Uh, if you're visiting today, again, we're really glad that you've joined us. I would love to meet you. I'll be me and the other staff will be down front. If you can, there's also a guest connection card. If you would fill that out, that would definitely help us get to know you better. It's right there on the giving tables. And for our church family, you know, we would ask that you continue to worship God by giving. You can either give online or the, those boxes are there on those back tables. Uh, we're continuing our series on do justice and love mercy. And so today feels a little bit heavier to me. Um, We've, we've really been building to this moment for us as a church of what we're about to look at and try to do today. And I'll, I'll tell you now that some of it feels, feels hard and difficult. So, so before I just jump right into that, um, because of the weightiness of today, I want us to take a few moments to pray. So would you bow your head and close your eyes? And would you just take a moment right there to ask God to, to soften all of our hearts and help us hear what he would say. Would you also ask him to help me teach? Heavenly Father, um, now we don't want to just rush into your presence without taking a moment to think about who we're speaking to, that we are speaking to you, the almighty creator of the universe. You're, you're the God who, who made us and sees us, that you see everything perfectly. God, you're holy and you're powerful. and God, we are weak and frail. And you've still shown us grace and mercy despite our brokenness, despite our rebellion. God, you've been you've been kind and patient over and over and over again throughout all of the history of of the world. You've been kind and patient. So I pray that today, as we wade into the things we're wading into, that you would help me to teach. God, we're asking, would you help us to listen? And God, more than that, I pray that we would remember as we engage these things about your grace and your mercy and your holiness and your kindness and your patience, that we would remember all of that today. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let me tell you how today will we'll look a little bit different. Um, our series has been called Do Justice, Love Mercy. And what we've been trying to do has been we've been trying to look at um, the issues of today that have resurfaced with a lot of, well, they've resurfaced with energy and emotion and, quite frankly, some, some rancor um, with explosive conversation, uh, people saying volatile things and it's been difficult, and one of the things that I wanted to do for us is I wanted to take several weeks for us to spend time looking at what the Word says about justice. How does God view this situation? So that we would learn to think how God thinks through things, that we wouldn't let any news media or any, any, anyone else shape our understanding of this but the Word and what God says. And so we've taken some time to look at that. We spent the first week reminding ourselves as we wade into this that God is in charge, so it gives us hope and confidence, and God is, um, his gospel is strong, which gives us this confidence that, you know what, he can actually fix what's broken. And then we looked at how God defines justice, which is the fair and equitable um, execution of just and fair laws, and it was also the helping of the vulnerable and the maintaining of whole relationships in the community. That's a, that's a mouthful, but justice was not just 
giving people what they deserve. It was more than that. It was much more than that. And that's why it's a whole mouthful. So sometimes our, our view of justice can be too narrow and too small. We, we also saw that the Bible makes it very clear that all of humanity is sinful. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that sinful and broken people have created broken and messed up systems. That shouldn't be a shock to us. It doesn't mean that every system is as bad as it could be. There's some good things that happen in the systems that have been made, but, but no system is perfect because there are no perfect people who are creating them. So it shouldn't surprise us if there's inequality or injustice. It should surprise us if there is no inequality and there is no injustice. That should be the thing that should surprise us. That falls in line with the biblical worldview of the brokenness of humanity. Then we also saw this, that the way we should be responding is with empathy and listening, that we should listen well and have compassion and work really hard to understand and feel what the person is saying. But, but empathy isn't enough. The call of Jesus is not just to listen, it's called to something more than that. And so last week, the thing that we shared was it's not enough just to not be racist. The call of Jesus is to love our neighbor. The question is not, are you a racist? The question is, do you love people? That's the question that Jesus would ask us today. It doesn't get racism off the hook or favoritism off the hook or anything else like that, but the call is much higher than don't do this. The call is be this, be loving. Love your neighbor. So, so this week, I'm going to guide us in a time of personal reflection. Now, this is a little bit new for me. It's probably new for you as well. But, but let me tell you where we're headed. I want to walk us through a journey of what does it look like, and we're going to talk about some things about repentance and lament. Um, we're going to talk about some things that I don't know that I fully understand, but I want to walk us through that time. So my job today is to give us time, not just to hear the word and think about what the word has said for the last four weeks, but actually a call for us to repent of the things that God has done in our heart. I'm not saying that we repent because I make you feel guilty. I'm not saying to repent because someone says something about you. I'm saying what has God done in your heart and if he's done a work and pointed out something, then our very first step is to repent. And this isn't hard for us. This isn't rocket science. It's not complicated. Listen, it's uncomfortable. At times we avoid it. Um, as a matter of fact, one of my, my biggest concerns is that as a Christian church, especially in the South, my experience with the church Here's what I believe happens in the church. We've conditioned our hearts to be really hard towards repentance. We love a sermon that punches us in the face, that makes us feel guilty. We love that. We love to hear an entertaining sermon, an aggressive sermon. Uh, we, we're like, we'll walk out of a sermon. I think it's Francis Chan. That's like, oh, wasn't that so good? I felt so guilty when he was saying that, right? We, we love those things. That's how we, sometimes how we measure a good sermon. Did it have a funny story? Did I feel bad? If it has both of those things, best sermon ever, right? Um, but, but here's the problem. The question is just not, do you feel guilty and was it strong and powerful and emotional and moving? The problem I have is that we hear these things so much week in and week out. We read God's word week in and week out. And the thing that does not happen is action. 
Like, I can't not tell you how difficult it is time to wonder what should repentance look like when the word is preached week in and week out. And I have this question mark that often what it seems to look like in the American church is absolutely nothing. It's you stay seated, you engage in your brain and you leave and it never touches your life. There's never a moment that you go to God and say, I was wrong. I repent. It just doesn't seem to be a normal part of the Christian life. And here's the problem. It is a normal part of the Christian life in the New Testament. It's normal and regularly. Why would I say that it's normal and regular? Well, first of all, let me just lay this out. The fact that our sin was so bad that the only solution was Jesus dying on the cross. It was that bad. There was not a lesser solution. Our sin, my sin, was so bad, the only solution was Jesus' death on the cross all the way to the death. That that exposes something about all of us, that we are much more broken and sinful and rebellious, dare I say wicked, than we care to admit. We, We don't like to look at it. We want to ignore it. But Jesus dying on the cross exposes all of us as really, really broken, sinful, wicked people. We needed a Savior. And no one needed it more than the other. We all needed a Savior equally. Let me say it this way. You and I needed a Savior as much as Hitler needed a Savior. That's not pleasant. But my sin was that bad. If Hitler never existed and it was just me, Jesus still had to die on the cross to save me. The second reason I say that repentance is normal is here's what that means. That means that we are continually growing in the understanding of the brokenness and the depth of the sin in our hearts. We're finding out how dark our hearts are are constantly. It it constantly shows new things that we discover how bad we really are and how much we still need Jesus. So you don't repent and just get saved and never repent again. That's like you get married to your wife and you say I love you on the wedding day and you never have to say it again. That doesn't work. It doesn't work in marriage, and it doesn't work in a real relationship with God. We are, we are continually and repeatedly repenting. At least we should be. And as we do that, here's what we're reminded of. Jesus knew my brokenness, and he still chose to die. I'm not catching him off guard. He saw how stubborn I was, how wicked I was, how rebellious I was, and he still said, I love him, and I'm going to die for him, and I want him. That frees us up to be able to freely and readily repent all the time because God is there with favor and kindness and a smile, with gentleness saying, I love you, I knew you were sinful, and I've handled it, and I am handling it, and I will finish the work that I've started in you. So with all that in mind, let let me define what repentance is. Repentance is the recognition of your sin. You're you're recognizing what you did was wrong or what you thought was wrong or what you felt was wrong. You agree with God that it's sinful. You feel sorrow over that sin, and then you turn away from that sin to God. In other words, it's a U-turn. It's a U-turn in your thinking and your feeling and your attitudes and your actions. It's a U-turn that says, what I'm doing is wrong. I don't want to go this way anymore. I'm doing this. It's the pivot. That's what repentance is. Real repentance, there's steps afterwards, but listen, it's 
it's, it's not just saying, I'm sorry I'm going this way and still going this way. It's saying, no, this way is wrong, and I don't want to do it anymore, and I won't. I'm turning to God. It's the pivot. It's the turn. It's the U-turn. It's more than just, I'm sorry, and I hate that this happened. It's, I was wrong, and I repent. Will you forgive me? That's what repentance is when we deal with God. And listen, I want you to know it's not easy and simple. It's painful and messy. Let me show you something. Our passage this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And what I want you to see is I want you to see how Paul engages a church to engage in repentance. All right, let me give you the background as you're turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's the background of the church in Corinth. I've told you this before. Totally jacked up church. I mean, they had everything wrong. Uh, I mean, they had false, they had, they were split up into parties of who their favorite teacher was. They, they were visiting prostitutes. They had all sorts of immorality in their church. They were, they were getting to church potlucks and getting drunk. I mean, who does that? Like, they, they weren't sharing their food with poor people in the church. They were disrespecting the Lord's Supper. Like, it, listen, you look at Corinth and you're like, that church is a nightmare of a church. Who would want a pastor there? And so what does Paul do? He doesn't come with a new program. He doesn't come up with a new marketing scheme. He has a call for repentance. And they respond with resistance and anger. They get in fights with Paul because he says, hey, guess what? You shouldn't do that anymore, right? Like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine a church getting upset at a pastor for standing up and saying, no more immorality, no more sex outside of marriage, no more visiting prostitutes, no more getting tr- drunk at church get-togethers. And the church is like, you're a jerk, pastor. You're ungracious and unkind. We don't want you to be pastor anymore because you would tell us to stop those sinful and wrong things. What happened to grace, man? That, that's what the church did to Paul. Is anyone else shocked by that? I can't get an amen because you got mass on, but can I get a hand? All right, I see that hand. That's what Baptists do. We look for the hands. I see that hand. Listen, it's phenomenal to me that this church would bow up on Paul when he does a clear declaration of the truth. But this church did, and it gave Paul anxiety. And so they began a good old-fashioned church fight where Paul and the church are going back and forth saying, no, that's wrong, you can't do this, you need to stop, don't be so stubborn, they're going back and forth, and finally they turn. So I want you to see this process. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says this, he's writing after they've turned. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, look what he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He said, listen, we've got all these awesome promises of God, and you've repented, but we're not done. You've repented in turn, but we've got to clean ourselves, all the defilement, all the brokenness, all the sin. We want to finish the work of holiness that God is doing in us and among us. You do that with the fear of God. So he's calling them to continually be in this state of repentance. Look at verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. Look at how relational this is. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He said, listen, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I love you. I I would be willing to die with you. I want to live life with you. I want to be with you, Corinth. 
I want to be alongside of you as brothers and sisters in Jesus. You don't, I'm not mad at you. I love you. You see how relational this is? He's come back after repentance with this. Man, I love you. I just, I need you to hear this. We've got to keep doing the work of cleaning ourselves. But I love you. I'm not mad at you. I love you. Look at verse 4. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. What is he saying? He says, listen, I know I'm being bold and aggressive. Let me tell you why he says he can be bold and aggressive. He has this confidence that they are real and true followers of Jesus. So you've got the spirit. You've got a new heart. It lets me say bold things to you about sin because I believe you have a heart that Jesus made new. You've got the spirit that causes your heart to want to do what's right. I can be bold to speak the truth because there's a real work in you. Listen, it's not just boldness because Paul was bold and brash. It's boldness because Paul had confidence in the work of Jesus in them. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. Look at verse 5. Look at how stressful it is. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Listen, are you talking about this? Like we came to Macedonia, we were thinking about you, and then we got to Macedonia. It was just a ministry wreck. Like people were trying to kill us. It was all, I had fear and anxiety. And the whole time, I'm thinking about Corinth. How are they doing? How they received the last letter? Did they actually repent? Like, are they grieved? Are they going to turn to Jesus? Is the relationship broken? It's complete anxiety for the Apostle Paul when it comes to this issue. So you need to hear this. When we begin to have conversations about sin in ourselves, and it's difficult and it's hard, it's, it causes anxiety and stress. That doesn't mean it's bad. That means it's hard. And look at what happens, verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comforted by you, as he told us of your longing. Look, look at the shift that happens. Instead of being angry at Paul, tell him to get away from them, being disgusted with them, it shifts to this longing for Paul. Your mourning your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I had made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Listen, here's what he's saying. He says, I made you upset with the letter. And I'm not, I don't regret making you upset with that letter. I don't regret it. I can sound like a really mean thing to say. Just imagine that. Imagine that you and I got an email exchange, right? Or a Twitter fight. I don't know. How do y'all want to? You decide how you want us to fight, okay? But we get an exchange of Twitter, Facebook, email, and it doesn't go well. I mean, I, we say something, and then I lay it out there, and it's like it's hard, and it hurts, right? Like it, it stings, and it grieves you to this point where you're like, man, and then you say some stuff back to me, and I'm like, all right, we're going to go. And so we're having this conversation. And Paul says, imagine me emailing you saying, I know it upset you, and I emailed you. I don't regret it. Oh, man. Okay, like, that's what he just said. But you need to hear why he doesn't regret it. Look at what he says there. 
He says this, verse 9, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved or upset, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss to us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Here's the point. Sometimes we encounter these difficult topics. It's stressful. It frustrates us. It grieves us. It's difficult to hear. We get mad. We get irritated. Listen, mad and irritated is happening all over the place in our country right now. The difference between mad and irritated as a follower of Jesus and irritated and grieved as a non-follower of Jesus is that it should lead us as followers of Christ to repentance. Repentance. Here's what those Corinthians did. They heard it. They wrestled with it. It was difficult. It was hard. They pushed back. But they came to this point where God worked in their heart and they said, you know what? That's right. I'm wrong. And I repent. So the grief that leads to repentance was a very, very good thing. And i got to be honest with you, as I, as I think about that, and I think about the conversations that we have been in for over a month now. Uh, listen, i got to be honest, I felt with some of you, not the way you've interacted with me, y'all been kind to me, I'm not saying that. I felt it with you, alongside you. I felt this thing as I watched the news and I get really, really angry. Anyone watched the news and gotten angry? Okay, good. Uh, you're humans, that's great. Uh, you watch the news and you just get angry, right? And do you feel yourself almost at times redlining up to this point where you're like, I just turn it off, I'm done with this. You're on Facebook and Twitter and it's on there and then there's a, more conversations. And as if that's not enough, we're in the middle of a pandemic and all these things are happening and different talking points are coming up and this guy says something and makes you angry, then this side says something and makes you angry and it looks insane to you and there's no hope to fix it. And then you got to come and hear it for a month straight at church. Listen, if you haven't wanted to hear it, I'm not sure I've always wanted to say it. But, but we did all of that to get to this point today. And this is not the end of the series. Next week we'll be talking about how we should be responding to authority and police officers. How the, today's answer is not the answer that God gives. We'll also be looking at what God's going to do at the end of all this thing. But what I want you to hear is the question for us today is no longer what does God say about justice. The question for us today is has God done any work in our hearts that have led us to the point of repentance? Has he done anything in your heart where he has called you to repent? And here's what I want you to know. I do not believe that it is my job to convince you to repent. That's a work I simply cannot and will not even try to do. What has to happen is you hear the word, the Holy Spirit has to do a work in your hearts that you say, you know what, I was wrong, Jesus is right, and I need to repent. And so there's, there's three things, stages I'm going to walk us through here. And after I do that, I'm going to remind us of the gospel so we can move towards celebration and not wallow in brokenness. But there's three ways that I think that we're called possibly to, to respond to what's happening. The first way is personal repentance. 
We get this, right? At least I hope we all get this. That you do something wrong and you personally and individually, you repent for what you did, right? So if I say something stupid to you, I come up to you and I say, what I said was wrong, will you forgive me? Right? That's personal repentance. I'm taking personal responsibility for my own actions. Again, I can't reproduce that in you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He has to do that. But, but here's the question I'm asking you. that I'm going to give us time to pause and think on this. But in the last several weeks, has God convicted you of any sin? For example, like favoritism or racism or being unloving or a lack of empathy or a lack of listening? Has he done that? If he has, whatever he's convicted of, the point is, have we actually repented and said, God, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And I, like I said, we're going to have some moments for that, but let me, let me just tell you part of my story in some of this. Uh, I've told you guys that when I was in seminary, uh, I didn't have a lot of money. Um, what I, I don't know if I've walked through much of this, but where I lived when I was in seminary, for me to survive, uh, rent was very, very low. And there was very few places I could live that had rent low enough for me. So I lived in this part of Norfolk, Virginia. Um, it was a very, very poor neighborhood. And I saw lots of crime in my neighborhood. I got lied to. People begged me for money, SWAT team broken next door. I saw fights in the street. I saw a massive, almost like a gang fight happen in my yard outside my window. I called 911 and the cops didn't come. They came, actually, that's not completely true. They came and everyone in the fight started yelling, it's the police, it's the police. And they ran two steps and started fighting again. And then the police left. I don't know why. I, there was a lot of it was a lot of people fighting you guys. If you're by yourself in that cop car, wading into that is going to be a big mistake. So I don't, I don't know why they left, but I realized the police can't help me here. The police came back about 30 minutes later when I was out in my yard at night looking to see if anyone was still laying in the grass. I, I saw really, really bad, bad things in that neighborhood. And here's what happened in me. I personally began to attach the bad behaviors I was witnessing with the race of the people that were doing those bad behaviors. And I began to make conclusions about black people because of what my neighbors were doing. Instead of making conclusions about the sin and brokenness of my neighbors, I began to make assumptions about black people. I was there for about a year and a half before God really exposed that in my heart and convicted me of it, and I had to repent. There was no one else to blame. The behavior of my neighbors was not to blame. The house I was in was not to blame. I, me, my heart, my heart took the leap of assigning bad actions to a race of people and showing racism and favoritism in my heart. And I personally, on my own, had to repent. It was not fun and it was not pretty. I did not like what I saw about myself. But I was not allowed to ignore it and be a follower of Jesus. 
That was not loving my neighbor. But that's not the only way we should respond. And I'll give us a moment to walk through personal repentance in a moment, but there's a second thing I'm going to walk us through that's getting a little uncomfortable for me. It's not just personal, private res- repentance. It's a thing called corporate repentance. Now, immediately, some of you should be like, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Uh, what is this corporate repentance? Like, I, I, that doesn't make sense to me. I answer to God for what I do. I don't answer to God for what you do. Why should I apologize and ask God to forgive me for what you have done and I didn't do? Well, I understand. In one sense, it's, it's totally true. I stand before God solely based on my walk with him. I answer to him completely for what I do and I do alone. Um, but the problem is that's not the whole picture of how God interacts with us. He also deals not just personally. He also deals with groups. Uh, let, let me give you an example. Uh, this is a really bad example. And remember, I'm telling you, I don't fully understand this. But I'm going to show you a few passages where I see it so you, I can justify what we're doing. Not justify, but demonstrate that what I, we're doing here is biblical. But here's the one example I want you to think about. In a few months, we're having an election. Whoever our country elects will be the next president of the United States of America. And we will all suffer the consequences of that, whether or not you vote for that person or not. Right? Like, if your candidate gets it, yay. But if your candidate doesn't get it, we will all personally, as a country, face consequences. And we don't have a problem saying that, right? There'll be consequences for our country based on who the next president is. Whether you vote for the person or not, we will all experience those consequences. We understand that with voting, but I don't know that we really get it with some of these things. Let me show you a few passages. I want to show it to you. Roman, or Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, let me just, we're gonna, I'm going to look at a few verses in there, but I want you to see this. This is phenomenal to me. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Israel has uh, been kicked out of the country of Israel, and they are now coming back from Babylon. They're rebuilding Jerusalem and the wall. They, they have been gone for over 70 years. The reason that happened is because they rejected God. They rebelled against God. They had idols. The people who were building the wall were not the idolaters that got kicked out of the country. That was their mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. Nehemiah chapter 9, they've just built the wall. And the people of Jerusalem gather together and, and look at what they do. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. It's just, it's the, the attire of mourning. They haven't been eating. They're fasting because they're taking this seriously. They're wearing these uncomfortable clothes. They put dirt on their head. I mean, this is very dramatic, right? So next Sunday, everyone show up in sackcloth with some dirt on your head, and we'll have a good old-fashioned, I'm just kidding, we're not going to do that. Um, Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood, and look at what they did. They confessed their sins, their personal sins, and the iniquities of their fathers. Well, what are they? What are they doing? They actually stood there. Look at verse three, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. This is what these guys did. They built the wall, and as they were, they were instead of celebrating, like yes, we finally got the wall built. It's awesome. We're back. God's restored us. They said, "Time out. Hey, God." Will you forgive us 
of, and they laid out the sins that they personally did. And also, you, you know what my dad and granddad did, how they worshiped idols? Will you forgive us for that too? Does that mess with anyone else's brain? Uh, listen, I do not fully understand that. I'm, I'm just gonna, I don't get it. But I'm telling you, they did not just do personal, private repentance. There's something corporate about it. Let me show you another spot. It's not an isolated spot. Daniel chapter 9. Here's Daniel. He's still in Babylon. This is before Nehemiah even gets to go back and build the wall, if I'm understanding the timeline right, although it gets squirrely in my head. Verse 3, Daniel is praying. This, listen, we might who Daniel is. This is like Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, right? He didn't eat all the food offered to the king, and, and then God blessed him, and then he, I mean, he, stu- he, he stood up time and time again. It's his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were thrown into the fiery furnace, right? Like Daniel, like there's like two characters in the Old Testament that you can't find any flaws with, Daniel and Joseph. I mean, Daniel just killed it as a follower of God in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You just see that that outfit again. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Oh, man, what did Daniel do? What is Daniel going to ask God to forgive him for? Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we... When you notice we, not I, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Tell me, Daniel ignored prophets? Daniel was one of the prophets. Who's he apologizing for? We. He's asking God to forgive him for all of Israel. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. He's going to say it repeatedly. I'm not going to put them all the verses up, but you can write these down for later. But he says it again in verse 9, for we have rebelled against God. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your laws. Verse 14 says in the middle, at the end of it, we have not obeyed God's voice. Verse 15, we have sinned, we have done wickedly over and over and over again in this prayer. Daniel's asking God to forgive them. And if you really want to get deep, Romans chapter 5. Listen, this is the, the way the entire gospel works. I'm guilty because I'm in Adam, and I'm righteous because I'm in Christ. The gospel works representatively. That I am clean because I'm in Jesus, not because of my actions. If, if God didn't work this way, salvation doesn't work this way. Let me read two verses. You need to study this on your own another time. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. I was made a sinner because of Adam. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. So what am I saying? Let me give you one other example. 
Here's what it would look like for us. If we as a church decided to pray and we said, God, we are grieved that abortion exists in our country. We, God, we are going to repent and say we hate abortion. We think it's murder. It's wrong. We hate that it's legal in this country. God, forgive us. Would you have a problem praying that? I, it's hard and it's uncomfortable. It also goes, God, help us stop. Show us, keep showing us mercy, but help us find a way to stop this wickedness. Listen, I, I got to be honest. When we talk about corporate repentance, this part gets real murky for me. How far back do I go? Which sins do I repent of, right? Um, and listen, when we get to that part of the service, I'm going to walk us through a time where I'm going to lead out for this church in corporate repentance. And the last one is lamenting. That's, that's mourning. In, in the Bible, there's several psalms. Uh, I, I think there's, I counted them up and now i got to find it in my notes here. There's eight to ten psalms that are just laments. That's all they are. And, and here's what it is. It's, it, there's an entire book of lamentations that they're grieving what God, what God has done, the punishment they've received. They're grieving what their nation has done in the past. And they didn't just grieve once. They grieved repeatedly. They, they memorialized the grief. Why? So they would remember and learn from it. So, so here's what Israel would do. They had festivals where they would just celebrate the goodness of God. And they would celebrate and be happy about it. It didn't mean everything was good and everything was bad. It just meant we're going to celebrate the goodness of God. And then they also had things where they would get together and they would lament and they would reread the book of Lamentations. And they would grieve. It didn't mean that everything was bad, but they, they would grieve what had happened in the past and what they had done. And they would look to God for grace and mercy. Listen, I, I, the best example I can have of this is, for example, when my dad died. I, that's October 20th. I remember it. So every October 20th, there's a thing for me of grief that just says, I hate that that happened. I grieve it. So what are we supposed to do in this? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk us through three stages here. And listen, this is going to feel awkward because I'm going to let it get quiet. But I'm going to walk us through a time where we personally search our hearts for personal repentance. And I'm going to lead us to corporal repentance where I'm going to repent on behalf of some things. And I'm going to say some stuff that y'all might not like. Um, you don't have to agree with it. And then after that, we're going to read some laments. I'm going to read it and be, it's going to be quiet so we can lament, we can listen and mourn. And that's going to be, I'm going to do a narrow focus. I can't lament everything. We don't have three hours. All right, so... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Again, I'm going to ask you right there in your seat to take some time to reflect. I want you to ask God to seek your heart and expose sin or hard-heartedness. And whatever God does in your heart, right there in your seat, I want you just to repent of it and ask him to forgive you. Let me ask, have you felt convicted of any of the following? Lack of empathy? Lack of listening well? 
favoritism. Racism. What about rivalry and rebellion? Listen, if God worked in any of those areas or anything else, we take a moment right now and just for you to repent personally for whatever he pointed out. Heavenly Father, I do thank you right now that you're gracious, that you say that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray for all of us that felt convicted just now of anything and that we repented. I pray that we would remember that we are clean and righteous, that you promised to forgive. You're quick to forgive, God. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that's intense, but there's a few more things we need to do. I don't know necessarily how to do this next part. It's that corporate repentance, and I feel a, a guardedness in this. Um. I want to be careful. I don't want to be critical. But I, there's, there's three things that I'm going to repent on our behalf for. And I'm going to do this as a church and a ministry. And I hope I have these right. I think I do. But, but I'm going to repent on our behalf of three things. First, when we first started the school, it's my understanding that we did not allow black students to enroll. I don't know if it was a, an official rule or just an unofficial, unwritten rule. But I want to say that was wrong and that was sinful and that we repent. I know we changed the rule and the action. But I don't know if we ever publicly said, this is wrong. And we repent. It was unacceptable. Second, been brought to my attention that uh, we've dealt with issues in the past by kind of sweeping them on the rug to avoid public scandal instead of dealing with them directly. You know, there's sometimes that not everything has to be out in the open. I get that. And I don't understand all the details, but I'm aware of one, that in the past we had a, uh, an associate on the pastoral staff team that had an affair, and instead of dealing with directly, we let it go quietly. It should have been done with directly and clearly. It should have been dealt with more openly. And instead of worrying about optics, we should have worried about sin. I want you to know that was wrong. And we repent of that. I also think that at some time we stopped reaching people and we fell asleep at the mission of seeing men, women, and child saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it became about survival and not about the gospel. It was wrong. We need to repent. So I'm going to take a moment and lead us in the time of prayer. And I'm going to repent of those to God on our behalf. So would you pray with me? 
Father, it is a... Um, It is a heavy thing when we look at our mistakes in the past. And God, we acknowledge that none of us are perfect. I believe that people will come after us and have things they have to repent of that we got wrong. You know, we acknowledge that you used people in this church to do great and phenomenal things. And we don't want to ignore those, but we do want to just say, God, we were wrong. God, we were, it was wrong of us to not allow black students to come to this school, and we ask you to forgive us for that. I'm asking you to forgive us for that sin. God, we were wrong that we were more concerned about optics than dealing with what was right. God, I pray that you would forgive us for not dealing directly with immorality and adultery on a staff. We were wrong. God, we, we lost sight of your mission and became more concerned about ourselves than the men, women, and child in this city that needed the gospel. God, we were wrong. God, we pray that you would forgive us, that you would show us mercy, and that you would show us steps forward that would accurately reflect repentance and that we would look more like you as your bride. And I pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. And I know that's uncomfortable. And I don't fully understand it. But I see it in the words, so we're going to do it. And the last one is I want to walk us through a time of lament. Our, our worship team's going to come up. I'm going to read a few laments about racial injustice. I know we could lament about abortion and immorality and 500 other things that as a country we have uh, gotten wrong. But I'm going to read seven laments, and I'm going to pause in between each one. And I want to give you time in each statement to process that statement and to feel lament, to mourn and to grieve. You can pray, whatever. You, you can just do this quietly in your seat. But we're going to go through seven laments. Here's the first one. It should be up on the screen here, hopefully. We lament the fact that slavery and racism were a significant part of our nation's history. We lament that it ever even happened. Second one. We lament or grieve that our country resisted equality for black people by using things like Jim Crow laws and other systems and structures. We lament that. We lament that the church was not just silent about racism and slavery. The church supported these sinful practices. We lament that. We lament the fact that there are some bad police officers that have used their position unjustly. For example, the killing of George Floyd. We lament the, ex the existence of bad police officers. 
we lament the fact that good officers are getting persecuted because of the existence of bad officers. We lament that some people have used this tension as an excuse for rebellion and the destruction of property and the attempted destruction of our society. We lament and grieve that that happens. We lament that the church in the U.S. is still very segregated because of the actions of the white church in the history of the U.S. Pray with me for God to show us mercy. Heavenly Father, we grieve. We grieve some of the actions in the past of our country. We disagree with it. We think it was wrong. We lament that it's happened. We, we mourn the fact that there's consequences today. But God, we come to you, we ask for mercy. Like you've been unbelievably patient with us. You've been shockingly gracious with us as a people. God, in all of this, our unfaithfulness as a nation is clear, but your gentleness and your faithfulness and your patience is also clear that instead of wiping us off the face of the earth, God, you've been patient over and over and over again. You've given us time to repent. You've given us time to fix things. God, you are patient and you are merciful. And in, in all of this, God, we don't want to just stop by seeing the things that we're broken in. We look to you. We look to you, the merciful and gracious King of the world, our Savior, who's patient and kind, that is so gentle with us. God, yes, we, we lament what's broken, but we, wor we worship who you are, that you are a patient and gracious God. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. Now in a moment, we're gonna sing I mean, I feel like singing. Let me give you something to sing about. And the music will lead us through this. But I want to remind you of something. God was not surprised by our brokenness. He wasn't. He sent his son to die on the cross, and he loves you. I mean, he loves you. Regardless of what you had to repent of, listen, he's handled it on the cross. He's handling it now and he will finish it in the future. He's got you. He's not mad at you for being sinful. He loves you because you're in his son. You're completely clean because of the work of Jesus. He's shockingly patient. He's not done with us. He isn't. He's just getting warmed up. He's still working in us and through us. I want to remind you that he's patient. He's paid the price. He loves you. He's patient. So as we get ready to sing, listen, I pray that we would sing not because of how bad we are. We would sing because of how patient he is. Would you join me in standing?